Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm joined this week by Matthew Vukovic, who is the surgeon agent and founder of White Coat Career. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for uh, coming on and talking with us. Thanks, Doc. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, Matthew. So why don't you give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're currently working on and, and how you got to you know, working with physicians and helping them advocate for themselves. Absolutely. It's kind of a pretty cool story. So full disclosure, I'm actually a partner in a life insurance firm in Beverly Hills, where I specialize in life, business, and disability insurance. Clientele really consists of high net worth individuals, a lot of uh, A-list celebrities, mainly in music, pro athletes, all four major sports. And I have both a very large but niche business with surgeons and specialty physicians for the fact that when you graduate, you're told you have to buy disability insurance. Uh, so I've been in this business for about four years now. And prior to that, I ran a major league baseball sports agency for the better part of 10 years, uh, where it was a really good experience, really learned about how to guide individuals from the draft to minor leagues and ultimately to the big leagues, and not only the player, but also the player's family. And so then when I transitioned into the insurance business, I worked under my mentor, Dennis Gilbert, who actually was one of the biggest baseball agents back in the uh, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Uh, I can work for him in his life insurance firm. When I got to LA, he thought that my background dealing with professional athletes and kind of dealing with the egos that come with it, I would do well working with the egos that come along with surgeons, particularly plastic surgeons in Beverly Hills, which is kind of the mecca of all plastic surgery. So through some of his uh, clients and friends, I started meeting some of the most predominant plastic surgeons out there. And then ultimately, it started gearing towards chief presidents and fellows in plastics in SoCal. So USC, UCLA, and Cedars-Sinai, really focusing on the basics of disability insurance, how you get it, how you can increase it based upon your first job, et cetera. What I didn't know, which you obviously know very well, is that all residents are really connected. So for me, what started in plastic surgery led to orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, vascular surgery cardiothoracic surgery, and then on to like derm, anesthesia, radiology, et cetera, really all across the specialty spectrum. Again, only really talking about disability insurance. But coming from a business background, I was really curious, how are young physicians finding jobs? So I started asking questions like, what's your elevator pitch? How are you creating your job search criteria? Who do you plan to use to review your physician employment contract? Really the basics of business 101. And with all due respect, doc, most people don't know what they're doing, right? And so I thought to myself, how crazy is this? You go through all these years of training. Now you're actually going to find your first job. You don't even know where to start. And so the end of 2019, I created a company called Exclusive Medical Advisors, basically hashtag surgeon agent. It was a free service that I offered complimentary to my insurance book of business. And basically what I did was I connected chiefs and fellows to um, healthcare attorneys, healthcare recruiters, medical device reps, et cetera. Whatever I could do to help you find more job opportunities, that's what I did. That idea really took off pretty well. Um, I co-placed about four dozen candidates and have 19 in early 2020. And then March came, the pandemic hit, and the whole world shut down. Interesting enough, I was having coffee with one of my neurosurgery clients, Dr. Joel Beck at UCLA. And he's like, hey, you know, I love this idea of taking this sports agent mentality and kind of bring it to the business side of medicine. 
why don't you create a YouTube page or a podcast channel, et cetera. Fine. The idea was great. The problem was that I didn't think people really care what I had to say. So I took his idea and I pivoted into what's, as you know, now called Interview with the Surgeon podcast. And really the idea behind that podcast was, would leaders in medicine, both surgical and non-surgical, be willing to share their personal story? What was their mindset like going from resident uh, to fellow? What was the mindset like going into the first job? What obstacles did they face, et cetera? Come to find out, the answer was yes. During that time of the pandemic, people had a lot more time. Zoom meetings were actually a thing then. Um, and so it really took off. Fast forward to today, I've done about 150 of these interviews, very predominant names in medicine. And one thing that we really learned is that, one, you got to interview a lot of places possible and really overturn as many opportunities as you possibly can. But also, we're seeing mistakes made right now in 2022 that were being made 30 and 40 years ago. So there's really been no evolution or anything like that regarding you going through this process and what's being done now is was, was being done before. And so that was really interesting. But more importantly for me, honestly, is that it really created a national network with leaders in medicine from some of the top institutions across the country. And then so through the podcast relationships, I've been able to speak about 50 plus different residency and fellowship programs, including medical schools on topics like navigating the job market, physician insurance, et cetera. And then through the success of all these different Zoom seminars, I've been able to speak at numerous National Annual Society meetings. And then each year I get invited to more and more which is cool because that means that the medical community as a whole is accepting the fact of us talking about how do we network? How do we look at negotiating contracts, right? How do we make ourselves valuable in the interview process? How do we sell ourselves and things like that? And so really all that kind of happened. And then through all those different um, opportunities, speaking to people, meeting people, uh, it really created an opportunity for me to launch what we'll talk about later on today, uh, which is really the White Coat Career Platform. Thank you for uh, giving us that background. It's really, really interesting story. And thanks for all you do to help uh, physicians. I mean, I can speak, you know, from talking to a number of kind of my more senior residents, I'm in the, the middle of my training right now is there isn't much education out there. I mean, the, really the medical schools don't do a whole lot to educate with this. I think maybe they're starting to try to. And then a lot of the residency programs, I mean, kind of just out of necessity, a lot of it's most of it's been on clinical training, obviously. But I think these aspects that, we'll, you know, you talked about and we're going to get more in depth about are definitely very important as well for building a successful practice and and just your own well-being as a as a practicing physician. I'm curious when you first meet with, you know, a physician client, how do you kind of first educate them about the job market space because I imagine a lot of clients come to you and they don't really know much if anything at all. <laughs> and I'm wondering like how you educate them and then I I find it really interesting you talk about that elevator pitch cuz you know how we sell ourselves in a concise way is I imagine extremely important. So maybe we we'll kind of walk us through that process there. Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting because especially in your world, for the majority of young physicians coming out, this might be the first time that they actually interview for a real job, right? If you look at other professions, whether it's in the finance space or the accounting space or even the legal space, I mean, by mid-30s, some of those individuals are already making partner. And so the medicine space is very interesting. And I think it really starts with what we got to understand, what do you want out of your career? right? That's the first question I ask every single person that calls me and says, hey, Matthew, can you help me out? The question is, what can I help you out with is what do you want to accomplish in your career? And I think that question needs to get asked way early on and not waiting until chief year or fellowship year, right? That's almost too late to start thinking about these things. And so I really want to understand what do you want to accomplish? Where do you want to live? How do you envision your practice looking, whatever that might be? Is it academic? Is it through a health system or is it private practice? And then really understanding what do you think separates you 
from other candidates in the country that's not already on your CV. And I think that's really the secret sauce in creating a strong elevator pitch is really understanding what is your personal skill set that can help you get to that next level or make you a stronger candidate. And so when I ask uh, whether it be a chief resident or fellow these questions, you know, most of the time they've never even thought about this kind of stuff. And so step one is let's figure out where do you want to go and what do you think you bring to the table? I think that really creates a strong elevator pitch. In most situations, whether it be networking or at a national conference or just meeting someone for the first time, naturally people are always going to ask you, well, tell me about yourself, right? Especially in an interview. And if you can have a strong elevator pitch, whether it's 30 seconds, 45 seconds, just give them an overview about who you are, where you see yourself going and what you want to accomplish. I think it's going to actually help guide those conversations. And so first and foremost is, Let's figure out what is your elevator pitch first, right? What makes you different? And I think what that does for young physicians is kind of gives them that confidence to where they understand how to present themselves, how to talk about themselves. Um, I think a big thing is, is that most physicians, you're right, in, in my opinion, are really focused on patient care first and being the best physician. And they don't really think about selling themselves or even really talking about themselves. But whether it's at an interview or whether it's with a new patient, you got to get personal with them, right? In order to do that, I think it makes the most sense to kind of figure out what is that elevator pitch and then kind of use that as you lead in throughout more conversations. And so um, how can we make that better? I think we just need to bring up the conversations and have it more around and have people just start thinking about things that, you know, what makes you different than somebody else? Because ultimately, if you're going into a competitive marketplace or if you want a job in the academic space in a highly competitive institution, you got to make sure that all those things really align for you. I think that's really interesting that you ask, you know, what, what do you want out of your career? It's, it's funny. I have a lot of medical students that reach out to me when they're trying to figure out what specialty. And I ask them kind of the similar question, because I think it's, it's important in a lot of different stages. One, you know, when you're picking your specialty, but then it's, I think, you know, you hit on a great point when you're going in the job market, there's so many options out there. And I mean, I'm not even quite yet at that point yet, but from what I hear, you know, there's private demics, there's academics, there's private practice, there's the health system, like you said, do you want research to be evolved? Do you want to just practice clinically? I think, I think that's interesting. Um, definitely. So I'm curious, you know, how much, you know, you talk to some of the, especially a lot of the older guard physicians out there and they'll say, I'm sure you've heard them say, and I hear them say, you know, oh, it's, you know, who, you know, it's networking, you know, a lot of jobs aren't even posted. It's kind of just word of mouth. How much in your experience, how much of that is still true? And how much uh, of that do you think is kind of, falling by the wayside with kind of these new ways of, of finding jobs with the internet and everything. Yeah. I mean, I actually think that it still holds virtue, right? It's not what you know, it's who you know. And no matter what profession or what, what part of life you're in, I think that kind of holds true. Um, you know, yes, there's a lot of job boards out there. There's a lot of things out there. You got healthy careers. Most individual uh, specialty societies have their own job boards too. So there's a lot of ways to go about looking for the, those jobs. I don't think the, really the, the issue is as far as like where do you go to find a job or, or how do you ask people for jobs? I think the issue comes down to is how do you network, right? Because if you don't have a network, you can't really ask people for, for jobs. It doesn't really work that way. And so I think where we, where we kind of missed the mark in the physician space is really focusing on, well, during your intern year or whatever specialty you're in, in those early years, what are you doing to network with individuals in your space, right? Leaders in your community, um, if you know of what areas you might want to live in, if it's whether it's Los Angeles or Miami or, or Austin or, or somewhere where it's very competitive, start kind of networking with those folks a little bit early on. And if you got to ask for who, who might be, it might be program chairs, program directors, et cetera, find leaders in that space, maybe presidents of societies. 
but I really think it holds true that you really need to network with, with folks. And I can tell you right now that I see most early job offers and what, what I hear as an early job offer would really be a chief going into their fellowship uh, year and already having a job and or getting a job offer within that first month or so in their fellowship um, or in their first month of their of their last year of uh, their chief year. And really what that comes down to is these individuals took the time, put in the effort to really meet folks throughout the years so that when it comes to that time, they're comfortable saying, are you looking for someone? You know, do I fit that mold of what you're looking to do? And more importantly, does it fit what I want out of a, a career? Uh, a lot of time I get phone calls from uh, from individuals saying, well, you know, I sent out a cold email and this and that. And I, and I asked them to send it to me. And it's basically this like cookie cutter, you know, email basically saying, hey, this is who I am. Are you hiring? That doesn't work. Right. Um, and so I think we got to get a little bit more uh, intuitive about these situations. And what I recommend to a lot of young physicians is that if you're starting to go through that job process and really gearing in as, as far as what cities you might want to live in it and what side of the business is it going to be academic or private practice or kind of in between her um, is really start understanding is, you know, how can you network with these individuals? You know, I know a lot of folks are across the country. And so, I mean, like what we're doing right now on Zoom, right? Send an email, make it a paragraph or two, make it highly personalized. Maybe you saw this person speak at a national conference, right? Maybe you read one of their publications. Find a way to connect with that leader and then ask them for 10 or 15 minutes, not over a phone call, do it over a Zoom or a virtual meeting so you can kind of get that personal interaction. And I'm telling you right now, I've never had someone been turned down from going through this approach. And so I think if you do this properly, it opens up a couple opportunities for you. One, now you're connecting with the leader in your space, which is really what you want to be doing. And two, you're now building reports, some you didn't know before. And so as, as those conversations continue to go on, you continue dialogue with them, you know, after a couple of times, you will then feel comfortable saying, hey, you know what, this is what I really want to do. This is what I'm hoping to find in the job market. Do you know anyone that's hiring or can you connect me to somebody else, right? And then not, not all you're doing is you're just playing the connect the dots game. And I think that's the game you want to be in is really figuring out who are those key opinion leaders in your space, connecting with them, getting them to know you, you get to know them. And then you ask them for help. You know, who else do you know that I should meet with? And so I think, you know, the old saying as far as like, not what you know, who you know is still true in this space. Ultimately, I think it kind of goes on in all different industries. Uh, and although there are great platforms, whether it be online job, re uh, job boards and such like that, that's good too. But I still think that what we miss the mark in the physician community is we're not networking enough. And when we do network, we're not going in intentionally, right? And so if you want to meet somebody, if you really want to engage with somebody, learn about that person, do some research before you meet that person and then engage with them. No, I think that's really interesting points. I'm curious, you know, as through your experience doing this, what are some of the, either the biggest mistakes or the common mistakes you see, you know, young physicians? Cause I mean, for example, I've, I've heard different like fellows or, you know, senior residents say, Oh, I, I didn't even thought about the job search or I don't really care that much where I end up or I'm like kind of flexible, which I, I mean, you would know better than me because you see, you've seen it play out, but I feel like you should at least have some idea of what you want to do and where you want to go. Because as you know, there's a wide variety of jobs out there and there's a wide variety of pay, you know, even within your own specialty. And so I, I'm just curious what kind of some, some big mistakes or missteps you've seen people make. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think the biggest one is not knowing what you want. Right. And so I find it so amazing that when I'm dealing with chiefs and fellows, they come to me and they're getting ready to go for, into an interview 
and they have no idea what they actually want out of their own career. Like, how does that make sense? Right now we're kind of working backwards. So what happens in that scenario, right? You go into an interview, they're peppering questions at you and you're answering them kind of rapid fire type situation. And you're not really asking any questions to see, is this a fit for me? Right. And so no matter what subspecialty you're in, you're training a very high level skill set. And ultimately, this is a business. And so you're generating revenue for that system or for that employer or for that practice. Right. And so in doing so, I think you got to kind of take a step back and figure out, OK, what do I want first? Kind of developing your buckets. I did a, uh, an interview on the surgeon podcast with Dr. Steinmetz, who's the chair of neurosurgery at Cleveland Clinic. And he brought up a super interesting point. He believes no matter if you're a medicine or a fellow, you should create three buckets. And the buckets kind of work like this. Bucket one are non-negotiables. Maybe you have a family, you want to be back in a city where your family is or where your, your wife or your significant other family is, right? Non-negotiables, bucket one, write them down. Bucket number two are things that are negotiable. You're going to ask for them. And if you get them, it's okay, but you really want to focus on some more things. And then bucket three are really things that you're going to ask for, knowing that you won't get them, but it might create leverage for buckets one and buckets number two. And so I think that combined with what you want of a career has to be done before you go into an interview. So I think preparation is probably the biggest mistake that uh, I've been seeing over the last couple of years is that young physicians go into job interviews, not really knowing what they want to accomplish in that interview. And then therefore, when they get through with the interview, they're like, well, I don't really know, like, what is the cultural like? What is the environment like? Things like that. So one is prepare for your interview properly, which is know what you want to get out of that opportunity, right? Secondly, learn about the employer, right? You have to understand what you're going into in order to ask the proper questions. So have any of your colleagues interviewed there before? Do anyone, does anyone in your network actually currently work there? Reach out to them, ask them questions. What was their experience like going through the interview process? So I think all that kind of comes down to, again, preparing for that first interview. And then also, I know a lot of times right now that people are, are on LinkedIn, right? It's a great business networking opportunity. And people are actually finding jobs through LinkedIn. The issue that we're seeing is that everyone wants to change their profile picture with, you know, the, the green bar behind it says hashtag open to work but they have yet to update their profile in like four years. So how does that make any sense, right? I've actually seen a handful of Chiefs and Fellows have emails that don't even work anymore, right? They're from like their med school email addresses. So do yourself a favor, right? Go through it, spend a minute every single year and update it. Make it very simple for someone to find you. And if they do find you, they know where you are in your training. So whether it be your training year, institution and specialty, just figure out a way to make it easier for folks to find you because they want to find you. They want to engage with you. So prepare on the sides for yourself, what you want of a career, prepare for your interviews and prepare for what that employer might be um, offering or, or also who you know that might also currently work there. And then lastly, from a social perspective, especially on LinkedIn, if that's the way you want to network in your business community, make sure you update your information. Um, I think that if we can start getting the word out a little bit more about that and having people prepare ahead of time, I'm hopeful that that might change this whole physician burnout issue. It may or may not affect it at all, but at least you can go into the job with a little bit more confidence in those job interviews. I'll tell you right now, especially in orthopedic surgery, I think the turnover rate in the first 12 to 14 months is like greater than 74%, which is insane, right? So that means that before they get through potentially their first year of their first job in their first career opening, right? They're already getting out and looking for another job. Now, that could be a, a, a difference of a bunch of fundamental issues, you know, maybe bigger than what we're going to talk about today. 
But I think going down to the core issues is, is that, in my belief, those individuals are going to job opportunities. They're asking no questions. They have no idea what they want out of it. And then ultimately they take the wrong job and then they're unhappy with it, right? And so uh, I think we got to do a better job of preparing ourselves and the next generation to go into that process. It's interesting you talk about, you know, knowing what you want and things like that and making such an evidence. And I, I think that's so critical. It's funny. I was talking to a IR uh, private practice doc here in Atlanta at a conference recently, and I was asking him, because the similar type of thing you're seeing in IR now is, I think it's it's some staggering percentage of attendings leave their job within the first two years out of training. And I was like asking him, why why do you think that is? And he said it was kind of similar to, is, you know, a lot of people don't realize what they want or they don't know what they want. And then they get into it, they just take a job. Maybe they just stay where they are, where they did training, because that's what they know. And then they realize, wow, this is really not what I want. Um, so I think it's it's a great point you make about kind of thinking about what you want. So kind of segueing off of that, uh, tell us about your newest endeavor, uh, White Coat Career, and what what was kind of the impetus for starting that and what you're hoping to accomplish? Yeah, so the idea was that, you know, how do we continue to provide non-clinical information, so really business education to the medical community? Now, as I talked about before, you know, through the podcast, I've done over, you know, 50 plus uh, Zoom presentations to specific residency and fellowship programs in medical schools. They've been super successful, but there's been a, a real couple key issues with that model. One, it's not really scalable, right? I can't do a thousand meetings a year on Zoom, number one. Number two is that more importantly, is that when we do these meetings, sometimes you get the full group, you know, but sometimes you don't. And when you don't get the full group, you're kind of missing that opportunity to really educate that, that individual that's not gonna be joining on the meeting. And sometimes it's out of their control, right? They might be stuck in the OR, they might be at home dealing with little baby issues, whatever it might be, there's, you know, life comes involved in those things. And so if you look at the demographic that actually is getting on these presentations, here's what happens. We have this great meeting, an hour long meeting, great Q and A's back and forth. And then it's like clockwork, right? Three months later, they're texting me, they're calling me, asking me the most fundamental basic questions. So I'm thinking to myself, why is this happening, right? And then you get into a bigger conversation. Most medical institutions have what they call a business education day or a business forum where they bring in all these speakers. You know, it's three or four hours. Very rarely people actually attend it. And then actually when they do attend it, they're not really pleased with what's being given as far as presenting wise. And so I realized that the way I gave these Zoom presentations actually work, but we're not really meeting the needs of the masses. And so why co-career was really came up because I was like, okay, how do we provide this education to them, not just recording Zoom presentations, but actually making a curriculum of courses that they're asking me about on a daily basis and then providing it to them on demand 24-7 in like a webinar type format. And so whitecodecareer.com will be launching uh, September 15th, actually. It's being given out to the medical training community completely for free. Um, I'm working with sponsors, uh, industry relationships, really, um, to kind of help continue to fund this and build the curriculum but we're launching with six courses, uh, navigating the job market, physician disability and life insurance, medical malpractice insurance, physician contracts that really covers contracts from an academic health system and private practice perspective, uh, the physician recruitment process. What does that cycle actually look like when looking for a job? When should you start looking for a job? And then lastly, practice management, understanding, billing and coding in network versus out of network. You know, I meet with a lot of medical students and one question that keeps coming up or more so a comment is that, you know, they're spending so much money per year. They're coming out most of the time a quarter billion dollars in debt and they have yet to realize how does a physician get paid outside of a salary? 
And so when you're getting this inside information from these individuals, you realize that if you want to change something and really create a movement, we've really got to put something together where it's on your guys' schedule. I mean, you can speak on it personally. Your schedule is crazy, right? It's usually early mornings, late at night. Sometimes it's weekends. And so um, you really got to make something available for them. And so through the relationships I've built through the podcast, I really have a large national network across North America to where program chairs, program directors, GME deans, medical school deans. And so I think I've got the right network behind me. I've got the right idea as far as like, how are we gonna actually gonna pump this out to the marketplace? And then ultimately giving it to, to y'all for free is really a game changer. Um, and ultimately we know that most medical students and residents don't really have a lot of uh, discretionary income uh, or cash on the side to pay for anything. And so really giving it to them in that format I think makes the most sense. And hopefully we can create a movement that actually, you know, can go on for generations and really change the game as far as like, well, I'm a doctor, so I'm a bad business person. No, wrong. I don't agree with that. I just think we're not providing you guys enough information so that y'all are asking the right questions going into that transitional year. No, I think that's awesome. And I, I really think you're filling a huge void here. I've I've often thought recently that, you know, the fourth year in med schools, you know, spent a lot of time, as you probably heard, you know, interviewing, applying to residency. And there's not a ton of educational value at it. And I think that, for example, would be a great place to, to you know, do this because, you know, at that point, you've done all the science training, all the, you know, clinical training you're going to do in med school. And then obviously the rest comes in residency. But I think that what a great time to, you know, really learn about this kind of stuff. And then I think, you know, integrating it, I think it really should be part of, you know, residency curriculum, you know, as, you know, part of, you know, learning and preparing you because it's not just preparing you for clinical practice, but also preparing you for, you know, the real world out there and the job market out there. And, you know, I think a great analogy I look at is I was talking with Naveen Goyal. I don't know if you know him at all. He's a physician turned venture capitalist that I had on a few episodes ago. And he was, we were talking about how lawyers seem to know the business market better. And maybe it's because they deal more, you know, directly with businesses on, in a certain way, but they know the business world often better than doctors do. And they're better at, you know, dealing with those types of situations. And I think, you know, they're a highly trained special specialist in their, you know, their own right. So I don't think doctors can cop out like that. I think you're right. I think, you know, we have to know how we make money, how we're billing, because it's at the end of the day, even if you're running a nonprofit hospital, it still needs to make money to keep the lights on. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, going on that is how, I guess, how do you see this kind of getting integrated into like the med school? Maybe you've already been, you know, kind of engaging in some of these conversations already, but how do you see it uh, being engaged in the medical school curriculum or even the residency uh, curriculums out there? So I think really the platform like Oak Career is really going to be an alternative educational platform. And so I don't necessarily think it actually fits in with like a true curriculum within the clinical space, because uh, then this is really focused on non-clinical information. And so I think that although it's going to be used, I think across all of North America, I think everyone from a first year med student to a fellow is going to see a lot of value in this platform. I think it needs to be given to the students and say, you know what, if you want to use it, it's available to you, right? Not making them use it. I, I think after time, it's going to become a household name. And I truly believe, uh, again, it's I'm very passionate about it, but I really believe it's going to be across every single training community in North America because it has to be there, right? It's a much needed thing. Um, I understand also that, you know, most of the time when I'm dealing with chiefs and fellows is that they just haven't taken the time to think about themselves because which I respect the most out of your community is that you're so focused on patient care first, right? It's, it's really a unique thing. And most professions don't operate that way. Y'all do, which I really love and I'm very um, engaged with. And so with that being said, is that 
it's okay to understand and ask business questions. I can tell you for a fact, there's this whole limitation mindset that a lot of young physicians have going through residency and fellowship to where you're afraid to ask leaders about business questions because it's like looked down upon. I don't think that's the reality of what we're actually going through, but that's what's been going on for generations. And so what we need to do is kind of change that mindset, allow us to have conversations, allow us to ask questions about contract negotiations, right? I understand that you want to take care of patients and that's why you do what you do, but you spend a lot of time. You've risked a lot. You've basically made no money for the better part of the majority of your 20s and 30s. And now it's time to really reap those rewards in a professional manner, right? Humbly. I mean, but to say that you can't negotiate contracts, I think is ridiculous. Now, there are some academic medical institutions where it literally is first firm and final offer. And that, that's fine, right? Okay, great. It's very few of them. But the majority of time, you can negotiate things. You can ask questions. But most young physicians have no idea, what do I even ask for? How do I actually have that conversation? And I think the bigger issue is, is that most time when you're actually doing these interviews or negotiations, it's not actually with the program chair or the program director with, you know, respectively, it's with an admin director or an HR person, which ultimately they cannot make the final decision, but they will bully you into thinking that you have to take this final offer. Right. And so I don't think that that's right. And so I think the ability to have a conversational negotiation should be more um, accepted amongst the medical community. It's not yet. It's my hope that I can kind of change that mindset. Uh, but in doing so, you deserve to be what you're paid for, what your skill set is, all these things. I mean, ultimately, your job is to go in there and take care of people. But then that employer, whatever that employer is, is making a profit off of your services. And so um, I think that that's a big thing going into and really understanding that it's okay to ask questions. I think the new generation of leadership is is more engaged with those conversations, is open to having them. And hopefully uh, through the platform, we can kind of let that keep going and really just providing uh, a bigger mindset. But more importantly, what ultimately what the platform would do is I want us to start asking better questions. If we ask more questions, we get more intel. When we get more intel, we can figure out how do we pivot that conversation. Um, and that's really what the platform is about, right? Providing educational information, non-biased stuff, um, from really experts all across different different spaces in the profession, and then also bringing in experts within the medical field, going through what they what did they go through, really talking about um, the obstacles and how can we better suit the next generation going through that experience. Yeah, it's a it's a great platform you're you're putting together, and I you know I watched some of your content that that you sent me, and it's it's really great you know content for you know of all levels as you mentioned you know if you're just starting out or even if you're maybe know a little bit, maybe you attended a couple you know, lectures or things like that. Um, and so I think it's, it's really great to help, you know, educate and we can do it on our time. You know, like you said, so many of these events that, you know, some of the programs they try and then unfortunately, you know, clinical time gets in the way or, you know, things run over schedule or, you know, life gets in the way. So I think, I think that's great. I guess how how can people sign up for for White Coat Career and and how can they you know how to maybe walk us through how it works? They sign up and they start you know enrolling in courses and things like that. How does it all work? Absolutely. So you go to whitecoatcareer.com. You would create a new account. Basically, it's going to be your information. Uh, where are you training? Medical school, residency, or fellowship? What program? What specialty? And then to verify your account, you need to either add in your LinkedIn URL or your DocSendy URL. I picked Doximity because a lot of physicians are already on it. So that makes the most sense. And then once you log in, you're actually going to be automatically enrolled. Again, remember, it's all free to the, to the end user, to the students. 
Uh, you'll be automatically enrolled into the webinar series where right now we've got six courses there. And then you can watch it on your time, however you feel that that's most needed for you. And you can pick what courses make sense. Um, and then that's really it, right? Now, we also created a section on the platform called the community section. And what really the idea behind that is we've got to do a better job engaging, interacting, and networking with our colleagues. And yes, you guys can do that at national conferences, and, and I get that. But we've got to do it better across the board, right? So the more information that we have amongst each other, the better it's going to be for a community at the whole. And so the idea is that you can engage with other residents or fellows or medical students in your institution, in other institutions, or in your subspecialty. I know particularly in neurosurgery, they've got this uh, forum discussion board called Uncle Harvey. Uh, I think it's the only one really out there for the neurosurgery group. It's cool. It's super outdated um, and not, it's not very user-friendly. And so I think we needed a new something, a, a new forum discussion board where you know it's private. There's no one else getting on here. You've got to be a member on the platform in order to even get access to the community section. Um, so I'm hopeful that will, that will actually um, take, take force there and actually be able to be a resourceful platform for people to engage and ultimately network with each other. But then once the course goes through, again, you can watch it in your, at your own time. And I'm already working on phase two right now, which would be additional uh, nine courses, about another nine hours of webinar videos. And the idea is that I will continue to engage with my advisory board, uh, which is really leaders at top institutions and really just continue the discussion as far as like, what are residents and fellows asking you? I will continue to stay engaged with those residents and fellows as I do most of their disability insurance. And so I'm very well in, uh, intertwined with their lives. I'm always asking questions as far as like, what do you want to learn about? What are your colleagues talking about? And so the curriculum will really be based upon what do you want to know about? And then I'll go out and I'll find those experts. We'll bring them into the studio. We'll do the recording and then we'll continue to provide uh, the end users with continued information, new courses every single year. Um, and really hope that this thing really builds out to where it, it's my hope that this will be the largest educational platform for business of medicine that's non-clinical training. Uh, so that's really where the vision is as far as where we hope to see it go. That's awesome. Uh, so it it sounds like it's also going to not only help you with your education, but expand your network, both within your own field and then with potentially other you know professionals like yourself that can help you navigate the process and things like that. I guess what's your what's your biggest advice on networking for physicians? Like when they come, they say, "Hey, I'm early in my training. I'm trying to you know broaden my network. What do you what do you think are you know besides joining you know networks like this and, and engaging? What else, what else uh, would you advise?" I think ultimately, right, everyone is in some specialized category. I think what you really need to do is, I mean, think early, even early on in your residency, you might have an idea of what subcategory you want to get in within your specialty. I think you want to focus on who are those leaders that you have not met with that you want to meet with, right? And I'm not saying you need to meet with everybody. Pick three to five individuals that you really want to connect with early on in your residency training. That's my advice. And by doing so, Let's go back to find out more about them, learn about that individual, send them a personalized email, ask for 10 or 15 minutes over a Zoom meeting. If you do that early on in your residency training, by the time you get to your chief year, if you do it properly, you should have developed a pretty substantial network. It may not be dozens of people, but it will be important people that also have larger networks, right? And so really what you wanna do is you wanna build an internal network for yourself but within that network, they have massive networks for you to kind of reach out to, right? Um, and so I think if we do that early on in the training process, it will help later on as far as like 
when you actually start looking for jobs. Um, I think that's really the best thing you can do as a young trainee. Obviously, going to conferences are great, intermingling with your other colleagues and meeting other leaders in your space. But I really think that you've got to find some people in your back pocket that you can rely on, that you have that personal relationship with. I mean, I really think, especially for me, I mean, even in my own business, right, being a sports agent and then getting involved in the insurance space, and now I'm in the medical community, you know, I've got mentors in all different professions, right? And I'm always asking for advice. I'm always picking off ideas. And so it's not necessarily where you only need to have one mentor. Have a mentor in each category that you want to focus on, right? And so you're getting different opinions from different people. But in actual order to have a true mentor outside of your program chair or fellowship director or whoever it might be, find other individuals at other institutions that you can build a relationship with. And I think if you do that early on, it's going to help you tenfold as you get to the ending years of your training before you get into the professional world. That's awesome. I guess I'm curious, you know, you've, you've, like you said, you've interviewed a lot of very prominent physicians in a variety of fields, you know, through your podcast, uh, you know, interview with the surgeon. I'm curious, is it, have you noticed any, you know, trends or commonalities among, among a lot of these prominent physicians or maybe common things that they usually say in response to some of the questions you ask them? I'm just curious from that since you've done so many of these interviews. Yeah, you know, a big question I ask is, you know, what advice do you have for, you know, chief residents or fellows entering a job market for the first time? So I really want to know what is their mindset of that. And, you know, I'm being honest with you here. Almost every single person says interview at as many opportunities as possible. Now, that might be controversy to what some of the older generation believe as far as like, no, you get one job interview, you take the job offer, and you move forward. No, it's not how this game works anymore. And so if you ask these folks, most of the time, what they would have done differently when they went through those processes, they would have interviewed at more places, right? And so a lot of times, the older generation, that wasn't really the way, it wasn't really okay to talk about these things. I think the game has changed completely as far as our generation and the next leaders in medicine. And so that's really a question I always focus on is because I want them to say it from their mouth, not from my mouth, that this is what we should be focusing on and this is what we should be doing for the next generation. And so, you know, sometimes it comes up to be where, I mean, I'll give you a personal story. I had a, a fellow that was a cardiothoracic surgeon, right? Going into the interview process for the first time, he was interviewing at a very well-established academic institution and he knew the program chair. I actually know, I actually know the program chair. Great guy, highly respectable individual. Um, and the interview went like this. You know, he interviewed, chairman said, great, you know what? Uh, let's see if we can make the financials work on our end. But in the meantime, please don't interview anywhere else. Now, right then and there, that should never happen, right? Don't ever discredit someone that's going through this process for the first time. But he did. And in doing so, it made that individual feel a little bit scared to interview anywhere else. Keep in mind that we actually had four other interviews lined up already for this fellow. So my advice was, let's do these interviews, see what else is out there. Maybe you uncover a unique opportunity. If not, no worries. You still got this, this, in, uh, this opportunity to fall back on. Well, against his better judgment, I'm, I'm going to call it, is that he decided not to interview anywhere else. Huge mistake. Well, what happens? You fast forward three, four months. The chairman calls the, the fellow and says, hey, you know what? Thank you so much for your patience. We couldn't make the financials work on our end. Best of luck. Now, that's a slap in the face, in my opinion, right? Because this individual was married, had two young babies, and they were thinking that this new city was going to be where they're going to be moving to, plant their flag, start his career, et cetera. It didn't work out that way. It took that fellow about four additional months to find a job. 
he ended up finding a really great job and a great opportunity. But my analogy here is that this individual respected this person so much, the chairman, right? And yet when the chairman said best of luck, it's because that person on the other end of that phone call, their lives have not changed. Their lives continue to go on, et cetera. However, that young fellow now is like, uh-oh, what do I do now, right? And so one, that's not right. If anyone tells you that, do not listen to that. You need to go interview at other places. But more importantly, it's your job to uncover more opportunities, right? This is the first time in your professional career that you're almost like a free agent baseball player, right? You can explore the entire marketplace. So do that. If you watch the interviews, they're going to tell you the same exact thing. Go look at as many opportunities as possible and then kind of narrow it down and figure out what makes the, the most sense for you. Um, outside of that, it's really just, you know, the podcast talk about what were their obstacles? What did they go through as far as like the transition from chief year to fell then fell to their first job? And interesting enough, people are making the same mistakes right now in 2022 that they were making 30 and 40 years ago. And they're going through those same obstacles. So the whole uh, process as far as how you get a job, how you interview, all those things really haven't changed that much. We're still seeing this, the same issues and the same obstacles. The difference is, is that now our generation, there's, we have so much access to information, right? And we're, we're, we're more intrigued to ask more questions. And so I think that with the fact that we want more information, we have a lot more information at, at our hand right now, we've got to do a better job making it comfortable for folks to say, yes, interview here, interview there, whatever it might be. And then you figure out what makes the most sense for you. Now, I will tell you that sometimes it's not always a perfect world, right? You might be a chief or a fellow looking for that first job. And maybe you only get one interview. Maybe you only get one job offer and that's okay too, right? Obviously you're going to take that and kind of go on, but just realize that your first job most likely will not be your last job. So go into it with a positive attitude, go into it knowing what you need to learn, learn more about the business side of things, get, get your experience on your belt. And then if you want to go into a different city or whatnot, go explore those options. But don't be, don't be sad or don't be discouraged if you don't get the quote unquote ideal job, because most of the time that's very few far between, probably about 1% of folks actually out there find their exact job, but realize that that's a stepping stone to get you to the next phase in your career. Awesome. I think that's great advice. And I, I think that's a great story you shared about the cardiothoracic surgery fellow and, you know, kind of deferring to to the chairman's word there. And I think, you know, it can be hard because I'm, as I'm sure you've heard, and there's a lot of hierarchy in medicine and there's a lot of, you know, I don't want to, for lack of a better way, fear of authority <laughs> in some ways, um, which I realize probably happens in other, you know, areas of work as well, but it's still there. It's almost like the military in some ways, you know, it's so I think it's, I think it's changing for the better, but I think, as you know, medicine's slow to change. I'm curious if, you know, if you've seen anyone navigate that really well, you know, someone tried to say, you know, they have some mentor that says, oh, you, that they're kind of afraid to say, well, no, I don't really want to go take that job or I don't want to stay, you know, maybe they have someone at their program trying to keep them there. And, you know, for whatever reason, they don't want to stay there. I guess if you've seen any kind of ways or maybe have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I've had numerous fellows be offered jobs uh, at where they trained their residency or actually where they did their fellowship and ended up not taking those jobs. Uh, the reality is, is that it's not about what they want you to do. It's about what you want to do, right? Um, and I think that that's really the, the, the whole thing we're trying to get across with the platform and really what I do with these presentations. And when I speak at national societies is I want us to change how are we asking questions and how are we viewing this approach? Now, again, 
I want to be very clear. I understand it's always patient care focus first. I'm all about that. But when you go looking for your first job, just because somebody wants you to be there, if that doesn't align with what you want about a career or where you see your career going, it's not for you, right? So don't feel obligated. Honestly, you don't owe anybody anything, right? You've put in the work. You've sacrificed. You got to this point in your life now. And most of you coming out, depending on what specialty you're in, are going to be low, mid, or even upper 30s, right? I mean, that's just the reality of the deal right now. And so you spent half your life now training to get to this point. How many years? 15, 18 years in school. It's about you. You've got to figure out what do you want out of life now? And that's something that sometimes gets, gets discussed. Sometimes it doesn't get discussed. But if you don't know what you want internally, it makes it very difficult to figure out what you want as far as going through that process. Now, I know for a fact that there are some programs out there to where uh, residents and fellows feel very honored to be offered jobs and they want to stay because it's a prestigious uh, institution. And that's wonderful. Just make sure that the opportunity is there for you and that growth factor that you want to do is going to be there as well. But ultimately, no matter what job you take, those first couple of years, two, three years, you're going to be grinding out there, right? You're going to be putting in the work, depending on what especially you're going to be taking extra call. I mean, just part of any profession, right? You've got to put the work in to get the credibility and really to get the respect amongst the industry. And so no matter what you do, it's not going to be a smooth sailing ride. And there's always going to be pros and cons to each, each job or each job. There's always going to be obstacles and issues. Your job is to try to figure out how do I make it the best possible for the current situation and then move forward. But ultimately, if someone's pressuring you, that might not be a good sign of what that relationship might look like to come. Uh, but I still think, again, it comes back to networking. If you know enough people and you trust leaders in those certain spaces or in your certain specialties, you can ask them for advice. You know, what do you know about this system? What do you know about this employer? Have any of your other trainees worked here? So can I talk to them? Can I ask them questions? You know, what was their experience like? Reach out to people and ask questions. I mean, I've got a, uh, a neurosurgery fellow right now that I connected to one of my current neurosurgery uh, attendings at Cornell. And basically I said, here's the deal. You're interviewing here. Talk to this current individual. He just went through the process. He's now a new attending. Ask him whatever you want, but ask real questions, get information. Um, I think we need to make that more available to folks so that people feel more comfortable asking questions because ultimately you're going to be doing this job to, for the next 30 to 35 years. You know, Make sure you get into it in, in a situation where you're starting off on the right foot if you can. Um, if you can't, fine, make it the best scenario for you. But ultimately find mentors in the space that you're comfortable asking for advice. And I'm telling you, especially in the, med in the medical profession, right? One thing I really learned through the podcast is that no matter who that leader is, they want to give back to the next generation. That's why they do what they do, right? Especially if they're in academics, they want to help train the next generation of leaders. So they want to give you information. They want to give you guidance. You've got to be comfortable asking for that. Awesome. As we close out here, you know, uh, and one thing I've noticed is I got into residency and then I think it just continued to happen is you have a lot of professionals that reach out to you, whether it's insurance agents, financial advisors, those types of people, you know, maybe even attorneys looking for, for you know, sell you legal services that want to, you know, help you, you know, at different aspects of this process. I'm curious what your advice is for kind of vetting those types of individuals. Yeah, great question. Something I speak upon a lot. Now, obviously, I'm in the insurance business, so I'm a little bit biased that you know everyone should use me. Uh, but ultimately, when you're going through this, a couple of things. One, ask for referrals. Does that person work with anyone else in your specialty, in your profession? Do they know what you're going through, right? Really big. 
understand what company do they work with? What's their history, right, with the company? Has it been around for a long time, et cetera? Get to know that individual. Honestly, really when it comes to financial advising or insurance, anyone can sell it that's licensed, right? So that's not the issue. I think the bigger issue is, is you got to figure out who is this person and what is their network? So I come from being a major league baseball sports agent, and I think professional athletes do this the best. When you're going to recruit players and they're interviewing you as the agent, they're asking you everything under the sun, right? They want to know who you connected to, what owners do you know, what GMs do you know, what endorsement contacts do you have for them, right? They're making you sell them on why should they hire you, right? I love that approach. I actually think that should be the same approach that physicians and surgeons use when finding a financial service professional. Because if you go with that approach, you're going to learn very quickly who is this person and what can they offer me? So what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is really what else do they bring to the table that they're not already getting paid to do? So for instance, right, if you're an insurance agent and you're selling someone disability insurance, right? Great. Anyone can do that. What else? What else can you do for me? Who else do you know in the business of medicine? Do you have any industry contacts? How can you help me further my career and further my profession because of your network? That's where I think we got to start asking questions. Same for financial services professionals. Well, I know right now for a fact that almost every single financial advisor sells insurance. And so they're hitting y'all up. They're sending you guys emails and LinkedIn messages and probably maybe even hitting up on IG, whatever it might be, because they want your insurance for one reason. If they get your insurance, they've got a good opportunity to get your money to manage once you get your first job. It's my belief that worry about your insurance first, right? Get the display insurance issue handled first, and then worry about a financial advisor or wealth manager. Honestly, none of y'all make any money right now anyways, going through the training process. So you don't need someone right now. But once you get your first job, you will need that person. And so Again, it goes back into asking questions as far as who do you work with and how can you help me out? I think that that same question kind of falls into the uh, attorney conversation, right? As far as like, well, should I hire a contract attorney? Should I hire a healthcare attorney, et cetera? What I've come to find out is just like in the insurance market, everybody knows an attorney, right? But most of the time it's someone that does family law or real estate law, et cetera. And I've honestly, if I've had, conversations, this might sound crazy, but with fellows that say, hey, my friend, my family, relative, whatever it might be, is a contract attorney. And they told me that they will review my contract. And if the wording looks right, I can sign. And my question is, is do they know anything about healthcare law? Do you understand how physician employment models work, right? The answer is no. So you think they're doing you a favor, they're actually doing you a disfavor, right? So on the contract side, you've got to find respected healthcare trains. And there are a lot of them out there. If you don't know them, let me know and I'll connect you to a handful of them, right? But find credible healthcare trains that know and see multiple different physician employment contracts, different cities, different subspecialties. They know what your value is. They know what you can ask for within the negotiations. You got to do the, the same thing. So when you're vetting all these people, I really believe you've got to be the one asking the question. Don't let just someone come in there and slick sell you, right? Find out more about that person. Ultimately, can this person help you excel in your career? If the answer is no, go find somebody else. If the answer is yes, ask them how. How can you actually help me out? Who do you know that I actually might want to meet where you can connect the dots? And I think when you go through the, the vetting, uh, these financial service professionals, 
as a physician, as a young physician, you have to do this. Ultimately, when you get your first job, it's a must to have all these people within your financial portfolio. But you've got to ask the hard questions. And what I've come to realize is that none of y'all do that. And then therefore, you end up with selling with someone that sells you the wrong product or they're trying to make a quick commission off you. Listen, across the board, specialty physicians, physicians and surgeons are really the most ideal client for someone like myself or a financial advisor. Why? Because y'all work hard. You work for many years, you make great income, and you're really too busy to really bother us, right? Because you're too busy doing all your other stuff. And so you are the ideal client for a financial service professional. The question is, is that person the ideal person to work with you? And I think that comes down to you exploring those conversations, asking people within your network, getting referrals from people that you know, and then kind of going through their process to see who makes sense. Now, I will say when it comes to insurance, it doesn't matter where that person lives, right? Because you might only change that policy three to five times throughout your entire 30-year career. But financial advising is a little bit different. It's a little bit more personalized. And so when it comes to the wealth management or the strictly the financial advising perspective, you might want to wait to figure out where you get that first job and then start engaging with folks in that city or in that area. Um, now, you might move and find might go somewhere else. But I think that there's too much movement between medical school, residency, fellowship, first job, right? You don't really know where you're, where you're going to end up. At least in that first job, you should probably be there for at least the first two to three years. Maybe once you get to that city, you start engaging with individuals because if you have a family, if you're buying a house, all these really important life decisions that come down to, I think it makes sense to have someone there in person talking to you, kind of walking you through this process. Sure, you can do Zoom, you can do phone calls, but I think when it comes to the money management side, you kind of want someone that's a little bit more local for you. Awesome. Great advice. And I, you know, I, as we close out here, I just, I commend you on all you do to help, you know, physicians advocate for themselves because they're not, a lot of us that doesn't come naturally to us or, or isn't part of our, our formal education or training. Um, so I, I appreciate and commend you for all your efforts to, to help the physician community. I guess my, my last question is we ask everybody, what, what do you do outside of work to kind of uh, balance out yourself? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a big golf guy, love of golf. Uh, recently been taking up tennis, uh, love the outdoors, love hiking. I still have got a player in the big leagues, Hobie Milner. Um, shout out to Hobie. He's a left-handed pitcher, Milwaukee Brewers. Um, so I love going to games, watching him play, just seeing him succeed out there on the mound. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, I love what I do. Like this is a, a lifestyle, right? And so everything that I do is combined into how I figured out how can I actually add value to other people. And so outside of like hobbies and, you know, and all those things, I really love this aspect of helping out this community because honestly, y'all are way smarter than I will ever be. But I figured out that I know a little bit more than y'all know in this particular space. And so I want to add value. I want to help out the community because when I get phone calls from chiefs and fellows crying on the phone to me, this does happen more so than you think that they're afraid to go into an interview. They're, someone's peppering with negotiations. They don't know what to say. Like, that's not right. Most of you out there in the physician community are helping us when we get sick. We need you all, right? We need you to help us out and make us better, especially on the surgical side, whether it be neurosurgery or whether it be a brain tumor. I mean, these are life-changing situations, cardiothoracic surgery, right? heart transplants, et cetera. Like, these are life-changing situations. And in my opinion, no one really gives your community enough love out there as far as like, thank you for what you do for us. Because without you, without our health, you know, no one's anything, right? No matter how much money you have, no matter who you are, it doesn't matter. If you're sick, the whole world's going to become crashing down on you, right? And so really what I'm passionate about, and what I say my hobby is, is 
the more people I can help out, if that can be my kind of calling out here, then let's go with it, right? The more movement we can we can create around it, the better it is. And honestly, the amount of support and uh, I'm gonna call it love from you know pretty predominant names in medicine, they're kind of getting it behind me and saying, yeah, we're supporting you. Yes, we're gonna go to medical school, Dean. And yes, we're gonna get this out there. I mean, it, it means everything to me. So let's all work together. Know that I'm available to talk to anybody. Um, and really just know that I'm a resource for you. And there's other people like me, maybe not exactly what I do, but there's folks in other different specialties, whether it be contract negotiations or medical malpractice or understanding billing and coding. Like these folks are out there. Get to know them, ask them the right questions, because ultimately, if you ever have a need or something like that, you're going to want these people, you know, kind of in your backpack um, helping you out. Um, and ultimately, if we can help change the game and, and, and hopefully make the physician community a little bit more confident going into the job interview process. If we can make y'all happier doing your job, it's going to help us out when we come into the hospital, when we, we need your services, right? And so um, hopefully that's kind of what we're doing here. That's kind of the mission behind it. And again, thanks again for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for taking time out of your schedule. I get, The last thing is, how can people reach out to you? What's the best way for them to, to get in contact with you? Uh, all across the board. You can um, hit me up on IG. It's at Matt Vuk, M-A-T-T-V-U-K. Uh, email is just Matthew at surgeonagent.com. LinkedIn is just backslash surgeon agent. Uh, and then ultimately, obviously, whitecocareer.com. And you can email me directly through the platform. Just know that I'm here and I would love to help out or just be a resource, whether it's be a sounding board or a brainstorming situation, whatever it might be. Let's just create a movement to where we're doing good with the community. And let's hope that when you go through this, Maxwell, right, that you're helping out the next generation below you, right? And so as long as we keep passing that, that torch down, uh, I'm hopeful that we can kind of create a better environment here. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time. Appreciate it. And we'll be sure to link all of those in the, the description for the podcast for sure. All right, Doc. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.